0: kubernetes community and welcome back to the pod ctL podcast first just want to say thanks to everyone that's been listening subscribing uh, sending in questions any and all feedback it's it's been really great so far and and if you do have some questions questions or topics you'd like to hear about, you know, make sure to reach out to us on Twitter or via email. Um, all that information will be in the show notes. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that can be kind of confusing when we talk about Kubernetes is What what actually is in in there, what's included? Um, I, thought, I thought you were going to say, it, should the show be pronounced pod cuddle or pod CTL? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's confusing too, right? I mean, that's a... Uh, that's up to each individual uh, person how they decide to, right? And, right. and st- start some parking lot fistfights over it.
1: <laughs> yeah, why don't we, before we jump into sort of what's what's in Kubernetes, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, why don't we talk a little about sort of the, the news? Because I think there's there's a couple of interesting trends that came out of the news this last week.
0: There was a lot of news out of the CNCF this week, which is uh, great timing after, uh, you know, we had a, a great guest on from uh, the CNCF last week. The first interesting one is Oracle, you know, a well-known open source proponent uh, joining the CNCF. The CNCF.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is it does feel sort of weird that uh All of these big companies that for years and years, you know, treated open sources, literally the plague or cancer or whatever, whatever other term they wanted to use are now, are now jumping on board. But it will be, as we've said with a bunch of other companies, it's, it's always in, uh, what do they actually do? You know, will they contribute? Do they get involved and so forth as opposed to just paying money for the foundation? But uh, I kind of thought Oracle had already signed up for this because they they made some Kubernetes announcements in the past, but I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know they, um, they had some acquisitions of some startups in the kind of the container space and, you know, they made. A, you know, splash saying that they're going to do the kubernetes thing like all the other kids are doing um, but yeah i'm surprised that it's taken this long for them to officially join the the cncf i mean yeah like we'll, we'll see what the, what their contributions actually are and even if it's just money i'm sure the the foundation and, and the rest of the community will gladly take their money right absolutely <laughs> well the other the other Kind of big I
1: guess two announcements that came out of the cncf and and Chris uh, you know from CNCF kind of hinted at this last week. he told us the votes are coming, but uh, both the uh, Jaeger project and the envoy project got officially approved as projects so one of them Jaeger being distributed tracing envoy being reverse proxy or you know proxy capabilities you know the technologies in those themselves are interesting um, it'll be interesting to see how envoy You know, Envoy is also part of the Istio project, which we'll cover at some point someday. The thing I thought was was even more interesting, though, is if you think about this, I feel like this is almost like the third generation of open source. So, you know, the original iteration was the Red Hats and VA Linux and SUSEs and all of those kind of saying, hey, We're doing this free software thing. We're doing this community-based thing. And then the second generation was the web companies all going, we're no longer going to pay Oracle and EMC and Microsoft or whoever huge licensing. We can't scale our business that way. We're going to use open source software. And now we have not just web companies like seeing Google give back, but this is commercial companies now giving back big pieces of this back to communities to make them available for other you know, entities, whether you're in the cab business or you're in whatever business you're in. So it feels like the beginning of, of that sort of trend happening.
0: I think the interesting thing there is, you know, there, there's always that mindset, you know, the traditional kind of closed source mindset of something we made Internally is either our secret sauce or it's worth something. It's intellectual property that's worth money. We don't want to give it away. Uh, I think I think that they're coming to realize what they saw at the the big web companies and things like that is it's it's not core your business. So. So yeah, Lyft and Uber are are taxi cab companies uh, that you call v- by your phone. They're not huge tech companies trying to make money off the tech. So why not open source? And you know, like like Jaeger came from from Uber and, and envoy from Lyft. Why not open source these technologies? And you're actually going to get you know that that kind of network effect of having the community get involved with it, especially if it gets you know people really start picking it up. They're going to submit bugs and patches and you know and new features and and then now you're basically expanding your engineering footprint for something that's not really core to your business it it makes a ton of sense i was at
1: an event in chicago this week and somebody i was kind of talking about that and somebody raised their hand and they said you know so what we're not a we're not a cab company we're not a transportation company like why should i care about this stuff and what i tried to explain to them was i said yeah you don't necessarily have to be in that specific industry or even do that specific task but if you have a distributed workforce, you have distributed uh, devices that you're going to keep track of, you want to do real time events, uh, you know, kind of status updates of what's going on, maybe you're going to be in IoT somewhere down the road, you want to know, like, how do I think about integrating payment services or other things like those are all things that people like Lyft and, and Uber also have to do. And yes, they're not giving you their entire platform, but they're giving you pieces of that puzzle that if you think about them sort of more in the abstract, very well might be something that you, you need down the road if you're, you, any of those aspects are what you do in your day-to-day business.
0: Yeah, I think the other interesting thing that I saw this week was Heptio. If you're not, fam- if people aren't familiar with them, they're a startup uh, with two of the uh, kind of founders of the Kubernetes project from, from Google, had their own uh, Kubernetes-focused startup I think mainly they're doing services right now. They've released some, a couple really kind of neat open source projects, Uh, one for backing up Kubernetes, another one for kind of managing the manifests, but they took on a a series B round of funding this week.
1: Yeah. So it's, you know, all of us always sort of pay attention to to VC funding. This was their their round B. So I think they, they said they took about $25 million in round B funding. They had taken an A round less than a year ago. So, you know, we've seen some growth out of Heptio, like you said you know, mostly services training, you know, kind of the classic open source company kind of model. And, and they, they mentioned in the uh, their press release that, you know, they want to evolve into kind of productizing around stuff. But it's interesting in two senses. One, it's always interesting to see where VCs are putting money. Um, so it's it's good to see that, you know, Kubernetes companies, Kubernetes specific companies are getting are getting well funded. But it's also interesting to see if what variation on, you know, moving from service centric to maybe product centric uh, anybody does in, in the open source realm. And, and is it different if you're doing it Around the public cloud, or if you're going after end end customers and so forth, so somebody to to watch in terms of sort of a baseline of you know how is the Kubernetes community doing, especially around new startups. Absolutely. So why don't we dive a little bit into this topic? So one of the questions that comes up all the time uh, when I talk to and customers, or as I'm at events and so forth, as people go, I hear Kubernetes talked about as a platform, right? You know, they'll say, well, Google uses Kubernetes uh, or some variant of Kubernetes as their platform for applications. And we want to think about using Kubernetes. And then they go, well, what do I get? You know, what comes, (laughs) essentially think about it, like what comes in the box with Kubernetes? And I thought that would be a good topic to dig into because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding from people about kind of what you get if you're just using the vanilla Kubernetes software versus, you know, what you most likely need uh, in order to make it operational and something you'd want to put into production. So maybe why don't we start there? What comes with Kubernetes out of the sort of the baseline open source project?
0: Well, this is one of the things I think that's actually really powerful kind of about Kubernetes approach too, is it's very tight Small core, pl- very pluggable, and you know, kind of those building blocks to build out that pl- that app platform without trying to include every th- single possible thing you would need as part of the Kubernetes project. So I think it keeps it sort of lean and mean from a development perspective, and then uh, also simplifies it from an installation, you know, upgrade, configuration t- kind of perspective. So what you really get at Kubernetes is you you've, you need, um, as we talked about in some of our, our basic shows, you need etcd, uh, the key value store. That's that's where that's our system record, you know, where we're keeping information about it. You get the controllers which do things. You have a scheduler. You know, you have the pieces running on the nodes to spin up the individual pods and things like that. From a services perspective, you get you know, DNS service discovery, you get proxying. So when your pod comes online for you to be able to talk to it over a port or uh, the, the basic networking within it, uh, that's in there. And that's kind of it. So when you stand up just raw Kubernetes, you can run a pod, you can publish it as a service, you can access it via, you know, say a DNS name for that service. And and that's, that's basically it. So, and that's a, I
1: think, I think that's a great starting point because for most people they would go, If I think about running an application, there's a whole lot of other things I need. I I need the network. I need storage or a place to keep my data. Where do I get my my container files from? All these other sort of things. So why don't we take a reverse on that thinking? What doesn't come with with Kubernetes that you sort of need day to day to to run applications in there, or at least run them in a way that are going to be highly available and and you can monitor them and, and all those types of things?
0: Well, I think the the funniest is the most basic one. The actual container runtime itself uh, technically isn't included, right? Um, since the beginning of the project, it was leveraging the Docker engine, um, but now it is is one of the options. But it it technically does not come with a container runtime, so you, that's a choice you have to make of uh, what container runtime you're going to use. You mentioned the images themselves, so the registry. So when you ask that runtime to, when you need to run a pod and, th- and that node goes and says, oh, cool, you told me to run this container image, it has to go to a registry to get it. And if you want any sort of advanced networking, so you want to do some sort of uh, multi-tenant networking, par- network partitioning or anything like that, by default, Kubernetes does you know very basic internal container network, but there- there's nothing kind of fancy about it uh, inside of there. If you want persistent storage, say for example, so you have a container that's running a a um, Redis database and you need a place to store the persistent files, you're gonna need some sort of persistent volume or, or file share. And then monitoring and logging. So you have, um, you know, the kube has its own set of logs, so you can get the logs there. And then the engine itself. So whatever, you know, if it's Docker, you know, you run Docker logs and and seeing there. But there's it's not, you know, centrally being reported and searched or anything like that or, or monitoring for that. And then even when you're if you're doing more persistent things like that, as backup tools. So how are you backing up your Kubernetes configuration? Or if you have a persistent application, how are you backing up that data inside the pods? Right. So I mean, I think those are kind of those like core platform things that you need to make a decision on when you're running Kubernetes. Right. And and I think, you know, you hit on a couple of of really important
1: aspects in there, so I'm going to kind of back up through your list a little bit. So you you talk about a container runtime, you know, for a lot of people the last few years that was that was Docker, uh, that was the default that Kubernetes used. But I know, like on episode three with Vincent Batts, we talked about what was going on in the OCI. He also talked about this thing called the CRI that people at the time might have been going, well, okay, he, he used those that acronym, but what did that really mean? You know, CRI is the kind of the evolution of trying to create a more standard version of uh, of the runtime. So Docker may be an option for people that may want to use the, the Docker uh, incorporated specific tools. But if you're looking for a more kind of open standard version, that's where CRI, CRIO, uh, CRI for the container, uh, open container uh, initiative standard format is is coming along and we're seeing them for other projects. But that's the that's that's the starting point like you said you're going to get that typically from your Linux host uh, as the container runtime you know in the future it'll also you know be Windows host, but that's really important because it it's the the place where the application runs a couple of other things i I think are are worth looking at when you make that long list of all those things that that aren't necessarily included by default. Sometimes people will look at that and go, "Oh man, that is going to mean a complete nightmare of work for us." Like if I got to if I got to integrate and tie together all those other things, and how is that happening? Like, is there anything going on to make that simpler uh, for for people?
0: Yeah. So I think the, you hit on the first thing with with CRI. I think the very clearly defined interfaces for plugging these things in was is a key first part so hey if your runtime you mentioned crio rocket you know docker you can create a new runtime as long as it you know as long as it can understand the cri commands and and use that interface then you can use with kubernetes and that applies to the other areas too like networking as the cni uh for managing you know third-party networking tools csi for storage uh, there's all those uh, capabilities just to make it easier to integrate with them. So that way, if you're running Kubernetes and you have someone say that has an SDN solution that you really want to use in your environment, and it's like, well, do you have a, do you have support the CNI in Kubernetes? Yes. Well, then, then you're good to go. Yeah. And I think that's important. It's, you know, the Kubernetes kind of architecture,
1: you know, all the groups that are working on it have always sort of said, this is going to be a, a pluggable framework. It's going to be composable. Um, we're going to allow you to to use the defaults to do certain things but you know the more advanced you want to get you have the ability to to make it pluggable so you think about something like like monitoring for example some people will use the ELK stack or the EFK stack other people will say you know I want to use like something like prometheus which is maybe a little more modern or you know designed specifically around kubernetes and the reality is you can use either of those models in the case of prometheus prometheus is a you know first class project within the CNCF and, you know, as we talked to Chris about within the CNCF, they don't dictate that those things have to go together, but there's obviously because they're, they're both worked on within the same kind of foundation, if you will, uh, there's, you know, there's some awareness of what's going on there. So you're seeing this really nice mix between if you want to be, you know, very modular uh, you can do that. If you want some guidance from, you know, the communities, you can get that as well. And, and like you said, the really important thing is there's now standardized interfaces for the runtime, for networking, for containers, and and we're also seeing you know sort of standardization around how do you extend it for third party services and so forth. Things like the open open service broker and other things.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's really critical. I think the most important thing if you're looking to run Kubernetes or, or honestly OpenStack or any sort of you know, bigger open source project or even soft even closed source software package is uh, anytime you you're turning the knob off the defaults. You should have a pretty good reason for doing that, right? So it was kind of a, a very common pattern, especially on the infrastructure side, in you know not too long ago, to say like we're going to build the perfect thing. So we're gonna get we're gonna look at the be- we're gonna pick out the best networking company with the best network doodads. We're gonna pick the best virtualization, the best servers, and we're gonna build this thing. And it's you know and you were building those snowflakes, uh, and then it made it harder to support and upgrade and all those types of things. So companies, I think, really recognize that. So they're looking to say like if I'm gonna switch. Like, I should have a pretty good reason why I'm not using the thing everyone else
1: is using. Right. Well, and the other thing is, is you think about maintaining these platforms over time, you know, not every single component of that necessarily, especially if they're coming from different projects or different vendors or different clouds or whatever, they're not always going to have the same upgrade cycle, not the same cadence and so forth. So, you know, that's another one of those things that you have to think about is if I don't have a standard interface for something and and one element of it upgrades every three months, for example, and another one's every six months or something else, how confident can I feel that, that they're going to adhere to that standard pluggability when the next release comes out and then I wait for a second release? and and have to make sure I glue those things together. So again, there's always a little bit of additional work that can't happen if you add modularity to the system. Uh, But there's also the great trade-off of, you know, you get some level of choice in terms of uh, the type of company or the type of project or the type of community that you want to work with. So that gives folks, and and we'll list all these in the show notes so you don't have to be, you know, thinking about, okay, what was that that fourth thing that Tyler said and so forth. So we, we sort of made a list of What's in Kubernetes, right? The sort of core engine, API, controller, and everything like that. What's not in there? What's, what's pluggable and so forth? Let's make this a little let's be a little more pragmatic about this. Let's take a couple of examples of things that are in the marketplace today, sort of commercial things in the marketplace today, and talk about them in the context of maybe something is a... A distribution, what people call like a, a Kubernetes distribution, uh, maybe more of a, something that's called a platform, and then we'll compare that to something that's like a you know a Kubernetes service from from a public cloud provider. So why don't we start with something like? And again, we're only using these as examples. Uh, we're not necessarily trying to you know compare one versus the other in terms of like better fit, but we're just using these as, as known examples. So let's start with uh, like the Tectonic platform from CoreOS. It's it's kind of positioned as. Uh, a Kubernetes distribution or an enterprise Kubernetes distribution, give folks a sense Beyond core Kubernetes, like what kind of comes with that, quote unquote, distribution?
0: So, so the team at CoreOS, they have, uh, you know, they have the tectonic distribution, if you will. So you'd be outside of the core. Here's the Kubernetes stuff we talked about kind of at the top of the show. You're getting a, they have a manager, basically a manager. I, I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but base- that, that does the installations and the upgrades and has some monitoring and and, and pieces like that. So you can keep your, keep your platform up and running. Uh, it includes a container registry too. So kind of like the, I wouldn't say bare bones, but like the the key, the most important stuff, right? You have your c- container runtime, you have your registry, and you have some monitoring and operational tools, and like those are like the key things you need, at, you know, at a bare minimum to get a uh, Kubernetes environment up and running.
1: Right, and I think what I would I would sort of. Categorize that as, is sort of a CAS platform. So people talk about like containers as a service platform. I think that's a, it's a good example of kind of a, you know, relatively complete CAS platform. So, you know, you're going to get the operating system where you're going to have your container runtime. You get, Kubernetes. Um, You know, it's documented as to how you install it. You get a more customized user interface. Like you said, you get the tools to do day zero and day one and two operations. At that point, it's sort of, it's built specifically for containers. You know, you're going to bring containers to the platform. You're going to have containerized your applications. Essentially at that point stops what the distribution delivers in terms of your application and everything above that. You'd really have to, you know, put together yourself
0: yeah your whole you know say pipeline if you you know from code to running container on the on the CAS, uh that's that's kind of you know, bring your own
1: right and I think one of the other, you know, one of the point there that that's sort of important and, and people can decide how important it is, is, you know, in the case of like Tectonic, because CoreOS is also a, a Linux distributor, you know, a Linux vendor with with uh, CoreOS Linux, or I think they call it container Linux now, you know, that that sort of comes included. So the reason I bring that up is it gets to the issue of how many pieces of of, say, like vendor support do I want to deal with? Yeah, in that case, you know, you've got a Kubernetes distribution, but you've also got, you know, the Linux pieces of embedded. It's worth highlighting that not everybody who delivers what they consider like a uh, Kubernetes distribution, delivers the, the underlying sort of Linux and, and the you know, container runtime with that as well. So something to kind of be aware of for people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like, uh, you yeah, know, like we, we talked about in some of the other shows, there's there's no actual thing in Linux called a container. It's C groups and namespaces and all those things. So you, you're you pretty heavily reliant on the underlying Linux OS. So, yeah, in the case of Tectonic, uh, Core OS is, is providing an operating system with it.
1: Okay. Let's, let's go... Maybe one step further. Uh, let's talk about something you and I both know: uh, Red Hat's OpenShift. So, OpenShift is, you know, OpenShift is an interesting platform in that you know back in the day, prior to like 2015, it would have been considered a PaaS platform. 2015 comes along; they've really rewritten the whole platform. Kubernetes is at the core now. In some in some ways, it's it's a CAS platform. Uh, you know, delivers containers as a service, but also does some things beyond that. So, g- give folks a sense of like. How do you go beyond being a CAS service?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's the it's sort of like a pluggable PaaS, path, if you will, right? So the, the that core Kubernetes, you know, it's Kubernetes and all the stuff we talked about, like with Tectonic, you would need the operating system, you know, the registry, the, you know, the operational day one, day two plus tools, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then on top, there's tools to build the, you know, there's some more of that you know, developer lifecycle workflow stuff. So if I just want to push code, there's a tool called S2I that, you know, automatically builds the containers for you. There's, you know, more advanced uh, GUIs and, and developer kind of namespace stuff so you can create different teams and who has access to what and you know uh, catalog uh, server open service broker to allow catalogs for other services to use in there so more of that if you have developers who are used to a PaaS type experience that, that you can provide that to them or if you have users that just want to you know push kube, kube manifests or whatever you can you can do that too yeah and
1: I, I think OpenShift kind of straddles the fence on a couple of things. Like you said, on one hand, if you just want to bring containers and cube manifests and, and so forth, you can just bring containers. It can, it can act standalone as, as sort of a CAS as, think about it like that. And then beyond that, you know, it does a number of things that sort of come from the history of it being a pass at some point. So it understands if you just want to bring code and it, it'll help you do builds directly on the platform. It has the ability to run a bunch of native, sort of middleware services, as you will, or framework services. So everything from, you know, Java EE app servers to spring, you know, spring services, spring frameworks, uh, node, you know, all these different language, all those sort of runtimes are available as services uh, above and beyond kind of the CAS services. And then there's, you know, there's the things that you talked about sort of in the application lifecycle. So there's, there's ways to more deeply integrate with a CI/CD pipeline, you know, Jenkins pipelines and so forth. And then the last thing I think is it comes by default with integrated storage uh, and integrated network services and so forth that otherwise you would have, you know, they are pluggable. Like we talked about, you could plug in uh, an alternative one, but they come with those things by default. So you're not having to, if you don't want to, integrate storage and networking and, and some of those other types of uh, infrastructure services.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's kind of the, you know, more complete, if you want to call it more of a platform, right? It's an app dev Based on containers, PaaS, it doesn't it doesn't fit neatly into a box of it's a PaaS or or it's a CAS or right. And then the last one I wanted to kind of compare this
1: to is to take one of the public cloud services. So let's take probably the most well known Kubernetes service. So like Google Container Engine, so GKE. GKE gets advertised as you know it's Kubernetes, it's always up to date. Just bring your containers and we and and Google Cloud will run the Kubernetes for you. But give folks a sense of what is the Google Cloud doing above and beyond just Kubernetes in order for them to make it such that you just bring a container?
0: So what they do is pretty. Uh, it's pretty slick. Is the with Kubernetes, is, you know, you know how it works from some of our earlier episodes. Is you have your masters and your nodes, the nodes that are running the the actual containers. So in the in the GKE model, they're running the masters for you, so you don't directly you know see those individual nodes. It's running you know sort of like behind a curtain, uh, but you. Access to it, so you get your and you can run your kubectl commands, you go all stuff for for you as a user. It feels just like you're you're dealing with your own private you know masters, and then the nodes are deployed into your Google account uh, that actually run the containers. Uh, so you get to use all of the Google pieces there, like networking and everything like that. So really, it's, it's like most of the public cloud vendors, right? They have a huge toolbox of services, and you can choose which ones you want to use. So um, they're bringing all that and making it available to you. So you're like hey, I need a container. I need persistent storage. Well, you know, Google has persistent storage. Oh, I need uh, I need a load balancer. You know, I need an ingress controller. You know, Google has that stuff. Uh, and you're just kind of going in there and picking and choosing, and then you can kind of assemble that into, you know, what your app needs to run without having to basically install and run yourself any of those components. Right, and, and
1: I think that's the key is it's probably more like a, you know, again, it's that sort of hybrid CAS slash a bunch of services, and those services are things that you could have gotten regardless of using GKE in Google. So you could be using their database service, their ML service, their AI service, whatever that might be, big data services, but they're all readily, they're immediately available to you. They just look like a console flavor. They're, you know, they're, you kind of grab them out of, a, out of a service catalog, if you will. And, you know, the other thing is you are doing, you know, some amount of kind of putting them together, but like you said, you're not installing them. You're not having to keep up with them and update them. Like you're not updating anything, to make a database as a service work. You're just saying there's my database, and then you just pay for the usage of it. So
0: yeah, uh, Kelsey Hightower's Kubernetes the hard way. He has you know one of the walkthroughs for it is doing it on on Google, and you can see where it says like oh well we're going to need you know um, a load balancer. You know it shows you how to request that with the commands and things like that. So you know there it doesn't just all happen automatically, but it, it's all right there. And like you said, you, no, you don't have to operate any of it yourself.
1: Yeah. So hopefully those those three examples help people get a sense of okay. These are some of the options that are available to me in the market and above and beyond, you know, just vanilla what's in open source. So I, we, we tried to sort of structure today's show as let's start with what's available, you know, from GitHub slash Kubernetes to how do I make it more applicable to running in production to, you know, what are my options if I'm a, if I'm an end user in terms of picking and choosing them. So hopefully that gave folks a sense of how much work might be on your plate, how much work would come from you know, the community or from a vendor and so forth and, and give you a sense of saying, okay, what kind of skills do we have in house? How prepared are we to, to be able to, to do this ourselves? And, What's our focus? Is our focus on the platform? Is it on just letting developers do what they want to do? Just paying for it a certain way? There's lots of different options that people have um, in terms of you know how they can get Kubernetes up and running, and then you know what it takes to to keep it running beyond day one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really the 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 key here, right? Is understand what's in there, what what isn't in there, and then the best way to get the stuff that isn't in there in there for you, right? So right. if it's I can just get, you know someone that comes on a download link from a, from a distribution, or I go to a turnkey public, key, a public cloud provider, and, and all the bits are there.
1: Okay, cool. So I'm going to kind of wrap up today's show. You know, as we we typically do with kind of a question of the week. And the the question is, it's again, it's sort of a talking point that I've heard quite a bit from people, and, and I've heard other people say they're confused about it. Sometimes I heard this term called pure Kubernetes. You know, I hear it in different contexts, and I've heard it from you know different people or different companies in the industry. What is pure Kubernetes, or you know, what is that supposed to mean?
0: You know, this is one of those ones where yeah, you do hear it, and you're like, what what does that mean? Is it, it's Pure, uncut, unfiltered, untouched by human hands. I, you know, I'm not sure. You know what the what the intent is there, but usually it's some somewhere in the neighborhood of like, oh, we're using the upstream Kubernetes as is. We're not changing it or anything like that. And it's like, well, well, that's that's most people. So you you know, download OpenShift Origin and you run it, and you may not off the bat notice that it's Kubernetes right away. But you know, it's it's there's no forked version. There there's none of that stuff. I think I think where that came from is some of the early days in OpenStack. There were P- there were some companies that were hey they didn't like how something was going in the upstream, so they would fork it and maintain uh, a fork of a particular project or something. Um, so sometimes you had some divergence in APIs. So then it was like, oh well, does you know, is this the pure OpenStack API or is this something else? Whereas Kubernetes? You don't really have that because I think the structure of the project that it's it's very very tight and small, and then everything is kind of outside that and, and very pluggable. That I mean, I don't know. If, I mean, I think I, I can only think of one vendor that's sort of forking it, but it, it's very corner casey, where to the point where I wouldn't even want to mention it. But I think in general, everyone's using you know, quote pure Kubernetes. Yeah.
1: No. I, I and that, and that's kind of where where my think where I think the answer is. To that as well, I think one of the the simplest tests to if you really want to ask somebody, you know, you talk to a vendor or something, or you talk to somebody and say like, Hey, is this, somebody told me I should be using pure Kubernetes is, is a couple of basic things, right? Like number one, um, you know, ask them to sort of show you, okay, where, where's the code come from? And, and if there's any unique features in there, like where are those contributed back to the community? So, so you have some sense of saying, Oh, okay, this is again, pure should mean like you said, sort of hadn't been forked or modified in a way that doesn't tie back to the community. And the other one is you really should generally be able to use any of the cube commands against the system as a baseline. And then if the the platform itself, say you're looking at a commercial distribution, for example, uses some additional commands, maybe they've added on uh, an additional set of features or capabilities that use additional commands. Okay. You should be able to use those as well. And and to a certain extent, you know, you should be able to alias them or sim them or something like that. So to me, that's, those are two really simple tests. And one of the things that we did from an OpenShift perspective that Red Hat did, because, you know, we had some people say, hey, if I use OpenShift, it uses these OC commands. What? Why don't you use the cube commands? And what we did is we created a website. We created a, a set of kind of validations to show that everything we do in OC, which is the OpenShift commands, is the exact same thing that happened in the cube CTL commands or cube cuddle commands or cube control commands, with the exceptions of, you know, places where we've made some enhancements in OpenShift that either... You know don't exist in Kubernetes today, so things may be around like projects and multi tenancy or may come down the road or something like that so if you go to, I think believe it's uh, Kubernetes by let you take a look at. Okay, let's validate. You know, give you an example to walk through of let's validate whether I use OC commands or or kube control commands. It's the exact same thing that's happening, the exact same outputs, and and you can you can feel very comfortable in that. So
0: I think that's the key is right. Is it is it modifying or is it additive? Right. You know, as long as whoever's thing you're using, if they want to add some additional capabilities, you know, that's that's kind of you know why you may look at those solutions. But if it's like, oh well, we've we change how that works. Works, um is really what you're concerned with if you're really thinking about pure kubernetes well and it's it's always kind of expected that at some point if you go
1: down the road of using uh, one of the commercial solutions that you know there's a very good chance that, that that vendor makes some other pieces of software and they may want to do some integrations with those things so you know red hat obviously uh, you know makes different other products whether it's you know an integration with an ansible or middleware types of frameworks and services and so forth you could see this maybe with oracle doing some stuff with kubernetes plus their database or you could see Microsoft doing some stuff with Kubernetes plus something with Windows, or you know, so I don't think it's a by any means an unusual concept to think that people might do some additive stuff. What you don't want to have happen is them making a fork of it and it becomes incompatible and so forth.
0: Yeah, I mean, as long as you're you know, you're not dealing with these real weird one off things, then that's that's really what you're concerned with.
1: Well, cool, man. I think we covered a lot of stuff. Hopefully, for folks listening, they get a sense of okay. Let's go back to that original question. What is Kubernetes? And they go, okay, I get it. I know what's in the core of Kubernetes and and they can begin to have a picture of what else is going to be needed in order for them to successfully use Kubernetes as a, as a part of their platform or their toolbox. Uh, we are This week, we are just doing our show. Uh, we, we're not doing a basic one this week, so um, I think folks got a few basic, basics over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but this week will just be the Kubernetes show. Um, again, thanks to everybody who's, who's been listening. Um, we'd love any sort of ratings or feedbacks you have. I know we've gotten some uh, via the email address, but please keep telling a friend. Uh, tell your colleagues if you like it. Um, Let us know what topics you want to hear about. So if you have some ideas for the show or ideas for topics, let us know whether those are full-blown shows like this one or a a short, basic show. We'd love to hear from you. So for Tyler, uh, for myself, we're going to wrap it up for this week. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.